0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I'm uh, glad to have the opportunity to talk with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our, our series that we started for the Advent season called Emmanuel. Uh, God is with us. And it's a, it's a series that we are, are just taking a look back to the book of Matthew at how Jesus uh, fulfills the prophecies in Matthew that are taken from Isaiah. But before we jump back into that, why don't we uh, take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each other. We thank you most of all for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that he came, that he died, that he rose again, that he made a way for justice and peace, for peace with us and you, and for peace with, between each other, and for peace with us and, and all of creation that's what we celebrate on this second week of Advent, as we remember Christ and we look forward to his second coming. And I pray, Father, that you would just give us a peace this morning that surpasses understanding. I pray that you would have said what you once said as we sing and as I speak and as we go on from this, that you would say what you once said to each one of us, that you would, your Holy Spirit would have our hearts and have our ears hear what you would have each one of us hear so that our hearts would be stirred and our our hearts would be stirred with affection for you that would send us out of this place with the good gift of the gospel. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Advent season, all right? During the season, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, right? And we're beginning to anticipate a second coming. And during the season, we do lots of shopping and we do the gift thing and we send out Christmas cards and we do all all those sorts of things also. But we tend to hear and use several familiar passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament during this this season. We hear them all over the place. We use them on our Christmas cards that we send out. We just kind of stamp a verse on there. We read them when we light the candles and we sing them in the hymns and the Christmas carols that we sing. I just want to read a few of those popular Christmas passages this morning. It's Isaiah 7.14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when Matthew quotes that in one twenty three, he adds, which means God with us. Isaiah 9.6 says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That one looks especially good on a Christmas card. I just like the way the, the script works. But anyways, in Luke, in the first couple chapters of Luke, you can almost open the first couple, couple chapters, close your eyes and just let your finger land on the page and you'd find a good one for, for a Christmas card. Uh, here's one from 2.13 through 14 in Luke. And suddenly there was, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. These verses paired with many other familiar, maybe not even so much Christmas related verses uh, and passages have led us today to where we've kind of come to understand that the Old Testament talks a whole lot about Jesus. It talks a whole lot about the Messiah who's supposed to come, right? We're aware of that. We know that the Old Testament and all these little passages that we know for Christmas and some others, the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And as we make our way through a book like Matthew, we see that the religious people of Jesus' day and Matthew's day somehow totally missed out on Christ. They totally missed out on the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and in spite of all that stuff that's in the Old Testament that we know pointed to him, right? And so the question I always am asking, and maybe you ask it too, is like how, how did they miss out on him being there? I think I kind of imagine, maybe you have your own visual, but this is my visual, is that the Jews all had like a Messiah checklist in their back pocket, you know? And so they knew all this stuff and they could have pulled that out and been like, well, he's from Bethlehem, check. He's from Na- he went to Nazareth, check. He heals people, check. Uh, he's been casting out demons, check. Yeah, he's, he's gotta be the Messiah, right? Have you ever thought about the Old Testament as like a map or like written directions so that they, the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, should have clearly seen what was coming and should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. I do. We had this joke. It's pretty messed up. But anyways, we had a joke about uh, my wife. I asked her if I could share it. But when you're in high school, uh, the Michaels craft store, you familiar with the Michaels? Uh, It was right down the street from our church, like a straight shot from the church, right? And Claire had to go to Michaels for some reason. I don't remember what it was. But she had to go to Michael's, I don't even think I was a part of this, it was just the running joke, but she had to go to Michael's from the church, right after church, which is two miles straight shot down the road, but she didn't know how to get to Michael's from the church. So she went all the way to her home out in Evans, because she knew how to get to Michael's from her house. So then she went from the house to Michael's and did her, de- now Claire swears that's not true and that's not what really happened, it probably happened, right? I'm just kidding, it didn't happen, I believe you. My point is, is that Claire and I are totally different when it comes to directions, right? And while I, I honestly can't understand how you don't understand directions that say go straight for two miles, like I don't get that, what I have come to realize is that Claire and I think totally different, right? We see things differently. We're not think, we don't think the same. I'm not better. She's not worse. It's not that. We just don't think the same and the directions don't look the same to both of us. We have different perspectives. What I'm getting at is that the Old Testament didn't exactly lay out this Messiah checklist. That the Old Testament didn't exactly give this direct roadmap to Jesus. That everybody was like carrying around in their back pocket so they could pull it out and say, check, 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 the Messiah is here, obviously. Right? In fact, most of what we would put on that checklist, what we would think of as the Old Testament pointing to Christ, what we now see wouldn't even have been on the radar like, as, as, uh, as applying to the Messiah, to the coming Messiah, until after Jesus came and died and rose again, for most people. They wouldn't have seen it because of how these events of Jesus coming, dying, and rising again defined and shed light on all that had been written before. It's just important for us to see that. It's important for us to take a look at the whole story of the Bible, And to try to get outside of ourselves enough to see from their perspective, to see from a different perspective than our own from where we are today. There's good news for us in seeing that the whole story of God is bigger than the story of our individual lives and our individual trials, our individual troubles, and our individual victories. The whole story of God is bigger than that. It's bigger than you and me. So it's good to step outside of ourselves and try to get some perspective. So with that said, let's look back at some scripture and try to understand it from the perspective of the original audience. Now, like I said, this week we're gonna continue to walk back through Matthew towards the beginning of the book, and we're going to take a look at two references that are made to Isaiah. One of them is found in Matthew 12, verse 18 through 21, in which Matthew quotes from a passage in Isaiah, which is chapter 42, 1 through three. And that's what we we read this morning uh, during the candle lighting. This passage is known as one of the four servant songs in Isaiah, and this is what it says. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Behold my servant, whom whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faint burning a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice and then the other passage that we're going to look at in matthew is uh, matthew chapter 8 verse 17 and here matthew quotes from another of the four servant songs in isaiah and this is isaiah 53 4 and he says this surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten smitten by god and afflicted so before we take a look back at Matthew's use of these scriptures, I want to spend a little bit of time with Isaiah's use of these scriptures. It's important that we actually see what the people of Israel would have thought and seen and understood when Isaiah made these prophecies and, 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 and brought this message. So the first question I want to ask is, who's the servant of God in these servant songs? Who's the servant that it's talking about in these passages that are talking about God's chosen servant? See so these passages and others like it are often used to point to the coming of Jesus Christ. We use them all the time. Maybe when I read it, it's just obvious. That's obviously Jesus, right? But our own familiarity with these passages and others is often in the light of their New Testament fulfillment, what we've already seen. It's important to understand that the passage in its original context, and and it's, it's important to try to understand what the original hearers of Isaiah's message would have understood it to mean in order to more fully understand what it means for us today. So that's what we're trying to get into here. Here's a couple of obs- observations that help us, try to dis- uh, help us try to discern, try to figure out who this servant is in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, one, which we just read, the servant language is introduced right at the beginning. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Sounds awesome. You can put that on a Christmas card, that's fine. But a short ways down the passage in 42, 18 through 19, still continuing about the servant, it also says this. It says, hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Who's blind but my servant? Or deaf but my messenger whom I send? Who's blind is my dedicated one? Or blind is the servant of the Lord? It's a bit confusing, right? Is the chosen servant awesome like the first part? Or is the chosen servant not so awesome like the second part? If you're here last week, we spent some time in Isaiah 6, and we kind of had a brief overview of what Isaiah's message would be and that he was going to be going to the blind and to the deaf, to people who wouldn't see and people who wouldn't hear. So this might sound familiar, the language. Do you remember the message? I'm sorry. Excuse me. You see, the, the, the chosen servant of these songs in Isaiah, as the original readers would have understood it, is Israel. That's what I want to get at. The original servant in Isaiah is Israel. And that's God's chosen people. And this is their story, isn't it? They were blind. They were deaf. They hardened their hearts. But God didn't choose. God didn't choose them as his priestly nation based on their merit. He didn't choose them to be the ones to take justice and peace to the nations because of some merit that they already had or something that they had done that made them worthy. As a matter of fact, Israel wasn't even a thing. They weren't a nation, right? Right? When he promised Abraham that he would make that he would father a great nation, Israel wasn't a thing. God just did it. And Abraham didn't do anything to deserve that either. He just chose him. Israel was God's chosen servant throughout the Old Testament. Israel's God's chosen servant here in these servant songs in Isaiah. And then there's a second question that I want us to ask of these servant songs, and it's then if Israel is the chosen servant, what's the chosen servant's purpose? The answer, we just read it in in, in Isaiah 42.1, and it's, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And it's restated just below that in 42.4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You see, the purpose of the servant is to bring justice to the nations. There's a lot of scripture. One more. Isaiah 42.6 says, This is good. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And I just want us to hear what he says there. I've called you. I'll take you. And I will give you. The purpose of God's servant, of Israel, the purpose of Israel is to bring justice to the nations. And the good news that God is giving to Israel through prophet Isaiah is this. God will uphold his promises. You're gonna go through exile. You're gonna go through hard times. You're gonna come to the brink of being extinct. You're gonna be punished. But God's gonna uphold his promises. You're still God's people. You're still my people. And I'm still gonna bring justice to the nations through you. You're still my chosen servant. That's good news for them when they read that. He's going to do it. Real quick, I want us to take a look at why justice is so important. Why is that the purpose? Justice is important because it's the precursor to true peace, which is what we talk about on the second week of Advent. Justice is important because it's the precursor to true peace. For there to be true peace, there must first be true justice. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ we get this concept, right? We tend to hear the word justice and we think about our legal system. Like when a crime is committed, we understand that justice, we understand justice is to make things right, right? There's a demand for some payment or some sort of penalty or some sort of punishment for the crime committed because there can be no peace between a criminal and society until the crime has been paid for. That's justice. There has to be justice in order for there to be peace. I'm really not a very smart guy, so I'm going to tell you another bad story about myself. Um, I also like to antagonize my wife a good bit, and that's, I don't know how to think it's funny, and it's not, I know it's not, but then it still kind of is because it's not. Anyways, I sort of feel sorry for her sometimes because she has to put up with me. It's not right, it's not fair. Uh, she's, she's really nice. But anyways, I just realized that I'm about to tell you the story, and it's not it's not very flattering about me, right? But anyways, so I'll never forget this time. It's, it's the, probably the first year of our marriage. We're living in our first little apartment. Um, and we got in some little argument. It, wasn't, it was something silly. I don't remember what it was. We were kind of angry with each other and kind of bickering back and forth. But we also were kind of still like having a little bit of fun with it, you know, or at least I was. And uh, I don't remember. I really don't remember what she thought. But uh, we're just having some silly argument. And for some reason, this is what I thought would be a good idea. I wanted to lighten up the mood. Uh, so I got out this blue and white serving tray that she had in the china cabinet, and I just started tossing it in the air, like, like I was flipping it, this is so stupid, why am I telling you? I'm tossing it in the air, because <laughs> I'm confident about my, my throwing and catching skills, I'm not going to drop the tray, okay? So I'm like throwing it, like, ha. it's aggravating you. you, you can't, you know, we're, I'm, I'm trying to, some, something in me says that's funny, but anyways. So Claire really loves those dishes, though. These blue and white dishes, you know, like the blue willow things. And this is a little serving tray. It's like this big. She really loves these things. She went on a mission trip to Europe for like three weeks. This is before we were married. She came back with just like, I think she left all her clothes in Europe and just brought dishes. You know, because she bought all these things over there. She went to their factory or something. But anyways, so she's freaking out. I'm laughing. I keep keep throwing it up in the air. I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to drop it until, of course, I drop it. It's not funny. (laughs) She's in the room. So until I drop it and it shatters, it just shattered everywhere. (laughs) I committed a crime. That's the point. I committed a crime. And I couldn't just repair it. I couldn't just glue this thing back together. It was in a lot of pieces. And even when you glue dishes back to pieces, I mean, you can see that it was glued back together when you do that, right? So that won't work. So the question is, how does this idiotic, criminal husband restore peace in that situation. She was mad. <laughs> I did not help the situation like I thought. Justice must be served first, right? For us to have peace in that. Justice has to be served. Like, what is the justice going to look like in that situation? I should have bought a plane ticket and gone to Europe and got another one. Because we still talk about this to, the de- to this day. And sometimes I still do stupid things like that. Uh, I, I don't know what we did. I don't know if... I should have taken her out to a very nice dinner, but I was young and stupid, so I probably didn't. But I at least need to acknowledge the crime, acknowledge the guilt, and offer some sort of sincere apology, a gift, something, you get the idea justice. Justice is making things right again, and it comes before peace. There's something that I have to do to say, I'm really sorry, and please forgive me, and can we please be right again? That's the justice happening. And then peace is what comes when we are actually right with one another again. And unfortunately, I don't think that I can ever actually pay my wife back enough to compensate for my stupidity that day. Because even if I could get her the exact same tray, I still did it. Right? So this, this kind of breaks down at that point. But that's the situation we're all in, isn't it? We still did it. Like no matter what we offer, we still did it. We can't put it back together again. We can't even go buy a new one. We still did it. We're still in sin. It's the predicament that we're in with God. What I want us to see then about the Israelites, about the Jewish people, their purpose was to bring justice. We need to know that. Because... As they bring justice, there'll be peace. Peace with God, peace peace with God for them and peace with God for others. But what I want us to see is that it makes sense at this point that the Jewish people would have been, have read this, these passages, have known these passages, have heard these passages in Isaiah and they would begin to expect that a king would come, right? The king would come who would lead the way in executing the will of God for them to bring justice and peace for the nations because they certainly couldn't do it alone. But they would remember the covenant that God made with David, that, his, that he'd always have somebody on the throne, right? That his family would sit on the throne forever. And they'd be expecting a leader, some guy on a horse, who they could put their trust in, who they could call king. But it's also important for us to remember that God instituted the office of king in Israel at their bidding, right? But it was always God's intent to be their king directly, so by the time that Jesus came, to the, came, the hopes of the many Jewish people were up. That's, that's where we're getting at. By the time that Jesus came, by the time we get to Matthew, they've realized they've gone through a lot of stuff. They've gone through exile, near extinction. There's a stump. There's a remnant. There's a little bit of a people. They're now under Roman rule, right? And they're waiting. They're waiting to be able to bring justice and peace to the nations, but they know that they can't quite do it themselves. So they're waiting for a king. They're expectant. Rome was in power, and Rome was conquering foreign nations and conquering foreign peoples, and then they were like, spreading their practice, practices of pagan worship as they go. The Jewish people were somewhat favored in Rome. They were allowed to worship God freely for whatever reason, but, but many people, many Jewish people, believed that the hour was near and were expecting a, a Jewish king to come and to lead the people to power to rule justly and to take God to the nations and take justice and peace to the nations in kind of the same way that Rome was spreading their pagan religion, right? This is where we finally pick up in Matthew. Understanding the thoughts and expectations of Matthew's audience then, that God chose Israel to be a nation, that they were the servant, that they were to bring justice and peace. There would also be a king who would lead them to power. There would be a king who would enable them to be able to do that. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 8 and 12. First, Matthew 8, 13 through 17, which quotes the servant song found in Isaiah 52 and 53. And it says this, Matthew 8, 13 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It's interesting that Matthew takes this quote and applies it to Jesus' acts of healing because he says, Because he healed the people, right? That was to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah said, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And it's interesting that Matthew takes it to mean something about healing because Peter later in his book takes it to be talking about dealing with sin. That same Isaiah passage about dealing with sin. But let's remember that when Matthew was writing this book, Jesus has already come, he's lived, he's died, and he's rose again. And so it's beginning to shed light on everything that's written before that, right? On this side of the cross, Matthew is able to make the point to his audience who are still expecting a warrior king, a Messiah to come and lead them to make things right again, to lead them into justice with God, lead them into peace and lead them to take justice and peace in the nations. The fact that Jesus was able to heal people of physical effects of sin, the illnesses and diseases, the fact that he was able to do that then, Matthew is taking and telling these people who are expecting that king that this is an indicator that he was the king they were expecting. Does that make sense? It looks totally different than what they were thinking. But the fact that he's able to do this means that he's actually made justice and made peace because he's able to do something about the effects of sin. Matthew can only make this distinction on this side of the cross because of where the power to heal comes from. According to the rest of the passage in Isaiah 53, I'm just gonna read a couple more verses from there. Because right after what he's already quoted, then it says in verse four through six about the servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Matthew's bringing this to mind to say he's dealt with our iniquity. He's dealt with our sin. He's done, he's taking back the broken dish. He's made justice so that we can have peace. That means, right? Matthew's putting the pieces together for his audience. That's what I want us to get at. want to show you. Matthew's starting to put the pieces together for his audience. He's not just writing a story about Jesus and some stuff that he did while he's here. Like maybe that we just read the gospel and we just see that this is just a story about what Jesus did while he was here. And then like that he also died and that he rose again. And that's, that's a good story. But he's, Matthew's writing to a particular audience and he's putting some pieces together for them. He's not just writing about that, that story. He's writing to them about their story. He's telling them the rest of their story. He's starting to put that Messiah checklist that I talk about. He's starting to put that together for them, but we have to remember it's only after Jesus came, died, and rose again. Matthew draws their attention back to their own identity as the servant of God to show how Jesus came to take their place and became the servant on their behalf. Jesus came to take their place as the servant and became the servant on their behalf. Matthew's saying to his audience and to us that Jesus is the true and better Israel. What they couldn't be, he was. Jesus is the true and better servant, and he's the true and better king. It's different than what they expected, but he's better. He took on Israel's remaining guilt, becoming their justifier. By becoming the chastised servant himself, he has provided true justice and brought peace. Jesus took on on the identity of Israel as the suffering servant so that they could take on his identity as just and as peace and at peace with God, right? Jesus took on the identity of Israel as the suffering servant so that they could take on his identity as just and at peace with God. We see in Matthew expand on this a little bit in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we're picking up right after an episode where Jesus we already spent some time here just a couple weeks ago, but Jesus, uh, it's right after an episode where Jesus has this legal dispute with the Pharisees about whether or not he's allowed to heal on the Sabbath, whether people are allowed to do good works on the Sabbath. And then right, right at the end of the dispute, he's like, oh, okay, well, I think you, yeah, you can. So, and then he heals a guy. And then the Pharisees depart and they begin to conspire to kill him. And that's where we pick up in, in, in 12, 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, Withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So here again, just as back in chapter 8, Matthew draws the reader back to the servant songs of Isaiah after Jesus has healed people physically. But also, it's in light of this legal dispute that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Did the Pharisees truly understand their purpose as a part of God's chosen people, as a part of God's chosen servant? Did they understand that the point was to bring justice, to bring peace, and to bring the mercy of God to the people? Matthew, by drawing attention to this passage of Isaiah, then is, is contracting the meekness of Jesus with the quarreling of the Pharisees. And we have to remember that at this time, they're the religious leaders seeking and gaining influence politically. They're, they're gaining some influence in Rome, and maybe they're possibly most expectant of a king to come. Maybe they're thinking this political influence that they're gaining is the route for, the king, for their king to, take, uh, to to come and reign. And they come into power. Matthew's just expanding the points that we made earlier, really, in this chapter. He's saying that Jesus is true and better Israel. Jesus is the true and better servant. Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies in Isaiah, all these things that these people would have been very familiar with. He's, he's the fulfillment of all those things in Isaiah and that he fulfills the calling of Israel by making a way for justice and peace. He took on the identity of Israel so that they could take on his Everything that Isaiah said that Israel would become, Jesus was, and Jesus still is. He doesn't need political power. He doesn't have to lead some sort of campaign. He doesn't have to lead by taking, you know, by, by power, by conquering like, like the Romans. He leads by taking the place and paying for the guilt of the sinner, right? It's not just a message. It's an action. Like he actually provides justice. He leads by taking the place of and paying for the guilt of the sinner bringing justice and peace by his own blood he's become the servant on Israel's behalf and Jesus made his kingdom available to the nations and is inviting people in from the nations this is all opposed to the Roman way of conquering and to what people would have been expecting the new Jewish king to look like so this is the good news that Matthew's giving to his audience and it's good news for us today Jesus is the true and better servant. He's the true and better king. He's our true and better king. Jesus took on the identity of Israel so that they could take on His identity, and He's come with justice and peace. And it's not just for Israel. That's what Matthew wants to say. wants to get at also. It's not just for Israel. Remember, the servant's purpose was to bring justice and peace to the nations. So He's come for us. We're the nations. And at the end of that thing, at the end of that passage, it says, and the Gentiles are waiting for it, right? That's us. He's come for us. There's justice and peace for all who, put, all who put their faith in Christ, for all who will follow him. No matter the history, no matter the suffering, no matter the chastisement or the sacrifice, no matter the exile or the near extinction that Israel went through, they could never save anybody. They could never make provide justice for anybody. They couldn't save a single soul. They couldn't bridge the gap. They can't make peace with God for anybody else. They can't even make peace with God for themselves because they couldn't provide atonement for the sin that came between God and man. They could never put the, undo what they had done. They could never put the dish back together and make it have never happened. Isaiah 53, 10 in that same, in one of the servant songs notes uh, that there's still a need for them for further offering for their guilt in order to fully see the will of the Lord prosper. I want you to see. Do you see it? Jesus comes through this, this remnant left of Israel. That's his family. He's coming from the stump of Israel and does what they couldn't do, what no king and no conqueror could do. Listen, this is really good news. Jesus made an offering big enough to provide justice for us all by becoming an offering of divinity wrapped in the flesh and blood of a sinless man and being sacrificed. Jesus endured the wrath of God. That's the violence that was needed. That's the violence involved in truly bringing about justice. That's the violence that's involved in truly putting things back how they belong, of truly making things right again, making things just so that there could be peace between man and God. God sent his only son to the earth to bring justice. He sent Jesus to a broken world, to this broken world, to make things right and to provide a way for peace between us and God, for us and each other, for us and all of creation. At the fall, all those things were broken. We couldn't undo them. So why does all this backstory matter? We could just say that stuff, right? Right? I think it matters because peace for us, real peace comes for us when we see how big this story really is. When we step outside of ourselves and see that it's not just about us. Real peace comes for us when we we see how big his story is. There's there's good news for us in seeing that the whole story of God is bigger than our individual lives, our individual trials, our individual tribulations, or our individual sufferings, our individual brokenness. Because we see that even in Israel's punishment and exile and near extinction and suffering, God was always sovereignly working. He was always in control. He was always working from the time of Adam and Eve, from the time of the fall, back at the garden in Genesis. He was working on a rescue plan. We're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible every night right now for, for the Advent thing for my kids, and I, I just love the way that starts, right? It's like, this is, this is going to be the end. But no, God had a rescue plan. I love it being called a rescue plan. Anyways, (laughs) he was always working on his rescue plan. And in Israel's suffering, he was working towards bringing justice for us all. In Israel's suffering, he was working towards bringing justice for us all. And then in Jesus's suffering, who took their place as the servant, he brought justice that could provide true peace. And in our brokenness and in our suffering today, he's still sovereign and he's still in control. And he's able to use our broken situations to fulfill his promises to once and for all restore this broken world into right relationship with him. Listen, the reason this backstory matters is because it's bigger than us. And if we only have have eyes to see like our little tiny stories and our little individual lives and how Jesus serves us, then we don't have it right and we won't experience peace because it's not just about you and me. It's not just about my story. It's bigger than that. But if we have eyes to see the grandness of God's story and the grandness of his work and the grandness of his rescue plan, then we will take heart and we'll experience real peace. Even in our brokenness and in our own suffering, we'll know that God is sovereign, that God has always been at work and that he's still at work and that he's even working through and in me, even if things aren't great. He's working all these things together for the good, even when it hurts us, even when it hurts Jesus became the suffering servant. We know now when we read Isaiah and we read these passages, we can just read Jesus right into those passages, right? We know that that's who he is. He took their place. He, he was from Israel and he grew up and became Israel for them so that they could take on his identity. Jesus became the suffering servant to lay down his life so that he and his rising from the grave could be our king, leading us back into right relationship with our father and to a just peaceful relationship with our father and in right relationship with each other and all of creation and he's coming again so we ought to be able to say with paul in romans 8 35 through 39 it says this who shall separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it's written For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that has us step outside of ourselves and embrace suffering because it takes a message of justice and peace to the nations. We've been recipients of justice and peace and so we can step out of our suffering and we can embrace it to take it to others. We can have gratitude that turns into generosity in that way. So we'll close with this. On the second week of Advent, we lit this candle for peace. We remember that in Jesus... The creator of all things has come, and he's made things right between us and our Father. As Isaiah says, he's taken us by the hand. We read that a little bit earlier. And we take comfort in that because in his arms, there's nothing for us to fear. He's proven it over and over again that he's sovereign, he's in control, he's powerful, he's almighty. he's come and he's taken us by the hand and in his arms we have nothing to fear he has authority of all over all things and he's declared and demonstrated that he's for us and he's not against us so we remember that in this first coming that we celebrate he brought justice and he brought peace for you and me as well we also remember that in our new identity in him we're also servants He came and he took on their identity so that they could take on his. He came and took on their identity so that we could take on his identity. That means we too now are servants. We're on mission with Jesus to bring justice and peace to the nations by taking the message of Jesus to them. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to be bringing the good news of the person and work of Jesus to bear on the injustices of the world. We have to go there with the gospel. And we're called to take the good news of the person at work of Jesus to bear in the lives of the fearful. We're to take light into the darkness. Matthew says this in chapter five. We're supposed to take, we're to take light in the darkness as the light of the world shines through us. And so my prayer for us this morning is just this. So we find peace in our identity in Christ because we're justified by his blood. So that no matter our circumstances, we'd have the courage to take the message of Jesus and bring the gospel to bear on the world around us. To take justice and peace to those who don't know him. We're going to enter into a time of response. And I just want us to use this time to be thinking about what he's come and done. What our identity is. Is and when we come and we we take this communion, we'll come down the middle and we'll go each way here. And you can take off the bread and you dip it in the wine and the juice. And when you do that, you're saying, "I believe that He is who He says He is. That He's the servant that He says He is. That He's our Lord. That He's the true and better King. And that He's made a way for me to be just. And He's made a way for peace between me and God. He's made a way for peace between me and others. And he's sent me out. And so we take it. We dip it in the wine and the juice, and we remember that He's our Lord and Savior." And we're saying that to one another. It's a reminder to to ourselves. It's a reminder to each other. So if you're a Christian, we're going to invite you to come and take with that. Whether you're a member of our church or not, you can come and take that and uh, proclaim the gospel to each other. If you're not a Christian, we just ask you not to because, like I said, of what we're saying. We're saying that we believe that he is who he says he is, that he's our Savior. And if you don't believe that, then then he's not that yet for you. And we'd rather you hear what we're saying in our actions. Jesus came for you. Jesus brought justice for you and there's a way for peace for you, between you and God, between you and others and between you and all of creation. We're also gonna take a time where we'll sing some songs of worship. This is a time for you to reflect. It's a time for you to pray. It's a time for you to stand and worship God together. We're also gonna have some people praying in the back or be available for prayer in the back if you'd like to pray. If you have something you'd like to pray about, if you'd like to know more about Jesus, you can talk to them. And then we have a tithing and offering uh, basket right here in the back, and this is a time to, to worship God through your giving as well, and this is a good season for that. Well, it's always a good season for that, but, uh, and as we give there, we, we remember who he is, and remember that we can trust him with every 100% of us, right? I want to pray for us, and then we'll move into that. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you again for this time together and I thank you again for Jesus Christ. I thank you that you sent him. I thank you that you made a way. I thank you that you've been gracious and merciful, that you used, that you chose a people, that you used a people, that you never forsook a people, that you through that people brought Jesus Christ and that through his life, death, resurrection, you've brought justice for us who are far off off from you and you made a way for us to be, right with you, to know you as our Father. You've made a way for peace. I pray, Lord, that you'd stir our hearts to just know our identity, to, like, to know that we're called sons and daughters of God, to know that we are your children and that we are loved. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a peace then, that would give us courage to go out with the message to others, that you would give us a gratitude that makes us generous with the gospel that we would take it to those who don't know you, to those who are fearful, that you would take our church, that you would take the church, that you would send us out to bring the gospel to bear on the injustices of this world, not because we can fix it, but because you already made a way, you've already done it, and we have the message. So I pray that you give us lips to proclaim that to those who need to hear it. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.